Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 252. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here is your host, Matt Boudreau. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 252 you're listening to. My guest today is Dave Hillis, who started his career as a guitarist in the thrash metal band Mace. In the mid-80s, they had released two LPs on Enigma Records in the U.S. and Black Dragon in Europe, and they were featured on Metal Blade Records' Metal Massacre 5, which is, for those of you old enough to remember that, quite a thing. Dave eventually made the transition over to audio, and he spent 10 years alongside legendary producer Rick Parasher at Seattle's famed London Bridge Studios during the birth of the grunge era. So Dave worked as the engineer on Pearl Jam's debut album, 10, and assistant engineer on the Mother Love Bone record, the self-titled record, as well as the movie soundtrack for singles. He's also worked with Alice in Chains, Blind Melon, and the Seattle Symphony. Dave and I met at a party in Nashville, and got to thank Vance Powell for introducing us. Very excited to bring you this interview. Dave Hillis, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let me talk to you about a few things. Recently, I was out having lunch with a good friend of the podcast, John Cunaberti, who is on, uh, he's a former WCA guest, John Cunaberti, I should say. He was on episode number five. I'll include a link in the show notes to remind you to go check that out to uh, familiarize yourself with John. John and I have been doing some work together on some file migration from older version of Pro Tools sessions to newer versions of of a particular catalog. Anyways, John told me about this great documentary. I watched it, and I want to tell you about it. It's Clive Davis, The Soundtrack of Our Lives. You can check it out on Netflix. That's where I saw it. I'm sure you can find it other places. It came out in 2017, and it's about two hours, and... I don't know what you know about Clive Davis, but this explores his 50-year career as one of the world's most influential record moguls. You know, I've known about Clive Davis probably since I was a teenager, I would say, but I never really knew about Clive Davis. I never understood the impact he has had on the record industry, uh, which is a positive one. He really is responsible for really exposing the world to a lot of amazing artists. Now, I'll be truthful with you. Never been a huge Whitney Houston fan, but I'm no dummy. I mean, I can recognize that Whitney Houston had incredible talent. But Earth, Wind & Fire, Whitney Houston, Billy Joel, uh, Janis Joplin was his first signing. You got to check it out. I'll put a link in the show notes. If you got a couple hours on your hands and you want to kind of brush up on your record mogul education, this is a fantastic watch. And I think you'll kind of walk away like, wow. What an amazing guy. So, yeah, Clive Davis, the soundtrack of our lives. Thanks, John, for turning me on to that. Moving on, let's talk about audio education for a minute. Now, no matter your age, maybe you're new to audio. You could be a person who is, uh, you know, my age and you're doing a career change. Or maybe you're young and you're fresh out of high school. Maybe you've uh, just come out of a two or four year college program and you're thinking, okay, I I just got my associate's degree in accounting or bachelor's degree and in some other thing, but audio just keeps calling to you and you're ready to jump in and you've listened to the show. And at this point, maybe you're not scared off if you're thinking that audio is your jam. So you think, well, I've always gone the school route to learn, so therefore I will Uh, get myself into an audio program, an audio school. Now, that's a a perfectly fine thing to do. There's a lot of audio programs around, at least in the United States that I know of, that are quality programs taught by excellent people. And there's probably some really crappy programs run by some pretty crappy teachers too. And I'm not sure of the offerings in Asia or Europe or the Middle East or other parts of the world, but maybe you're considering going to school. That's that's the bottom line. Now, maybe this school is going to cost you fifteen dollars to $25,000 to $45,000. I don't know. There's some expensive programs out here in the Bay Area, I can tell you that. What if 
you do that. And then you go deeply in debt over that. And it occupies, let's say, two to four years of your time of constantly going to classes. Of course, to learn, you got to show up to class, right? Those of you that listen to the show know I'm just not a big fan of debt. I do not ever encourage any of you to go into debt. It's a big trap. I won't go down that rabbit hole discussion, but no debt, right? Don't do it. What if instead of going into debt and going to a traditional school situation that you instead do all of your learning online? There's a number of programs put out by a large number of people that could teach you what you need to know and you could learn at your own pace. Not only your own learning pace, but also your own financial pace. Imagine instead that you made your own curriculum. We live in a fantastic age. There's enough information on the internet and enough books in this world. You could be self-taught about the basics. And along the way, you, you could pay as you go. Therefore, you don't go into debt and you stay at a steady pace. But as you go, you learn new things, learn different ways of doing things, and you meet different people. And that opens up different opportunities for possible internships or mentorships. And maybe you find the path that suits you best because maybe you're not the person that really wants to go record bands. Maybe you are more comfortable on a film set. Maybe you're more interested in game sound. Maybe you're more interested in mastering or mixing, whatever it is. There are so many different paths that you could take and you could structure it in a way that fits you best. So, you know, I think I've pretty much laid it all out here with, you know, I could, I could beat this one into the ground, but long story short, instead of going to school, think about self-paced learning on your own via books, via online programs. A lot of the people I have interviewed have some outstanding programs. I couldn't possibly name them all, but it's something to consider because like I say, you could spend all your time in a classroom learning, some, learning the basics, but maybe their activities day to day ultimately don't play into what you want to focus on. And if you're older like me, you are a little more, you're a little more decisive and you are more focused on what you want to do. That could be a perfect thing for you. And if you're younger, even better. You can sample all the different programs that are out there and you could do it in an, in an affordable way that doesn't break the bank and keeps you out of debt. So food for thought. Tell me what you think. If you have a strong opinion about it one way or the other, uh, send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com. And if you're uh, a teacher or professor at a school that's teaching this and uh, playing my program for your students, I apologize for introducing uh, an alternative thought here, but it is a good th thing to think about. And if you are involved in a school right now, you know, you can always complement the learning that you're getting with online content because then it gives you good questions to ask your teacher or professor and it gives you a different perspective. So just trying to introduce a different concept here for those that want to try a different path. So there it is. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, 
you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You can talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, let's get to it. Dave Hillis here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hey, Dave, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. We met through our mutual friend, Vance Powell, and that was at a party. God, I think that was over at Reed Shippen and Pete Lyman's party. Right. And, Great place. And, and I think the introduction was Vance going, that's Dave Hillis. He recorded Pearl Jam or something like that. It was very Vance. That's a yeah, Vance style, for sure. Just kind of walking. Oh, hi, Dave. Yeah, all right. <laughs> well, so I want to just get started. You were, as far as growing up, you actually were born in Brooklyn. Is that right? Yeah, I, I moved out to the West Coast when I was like 11. So most of my growing up was done in Seattle area. Mm -hmm. Although I went back to New York all the time. My brother still lived out there, so I would go back every summer and that time, there wasn't a lot going on in Seattle. So for me to be able to go back to New York and Brooklyn was like so exciting. I couldn't wait for it every... I, I thought for sure I'd end up pretty much living there, but didn't really work out that way. Do you have a lot of memories from those first years? Coming from Brooklyn, even just for that period, was monumental in a lot of ways for me. My household was still very Brooklyn. My mother is like as Brooklyn as you can get. <laughs> and my aunt lived with us as well. Same thing. So I had very, it was uh, Brooklyn put into a suburb of Seattle, kind of all in a house. So I lived it in many ways. And like I said, going back there, Funny enough, odd thing is my next door neighbor in Brooklyn, we, we lived in, you know, those houses that were all attached to brownstones. And my next door neighbor was a guy named Pete, who was in a band called Typo Negative that ended up doing fairly well. But he was like a couple of years older than me. So he was already playing guitar and doing crazy things and stuff. And I saw him like kind of put a band together and that was like really influential. Like before I even left Brooklyn, like at nine and 10, I'm watching this guy start a band. Years later, I had my own band. I got signed to Island Records and I was in Guitar World magazine on these like up and coming things. And it was three different bands. I forget who the third one was. It was my band and Typo Negative. And we're on the same page. And I'm going, how weird is that? The guy was my next door neighbor in Brooklyn. And like influenced me to like, it was one of the first times I saw people playing live and doing it in, in a rehearsal situation. So I ironic that you would wind up on the same, you know, page. page. Like, yeah. Great. Next to her. Yeah photographs and like that's so insane very interesting but then the big move to seattle did that have an impact on you as a kid oh for sure it's kind of a culture shock i mean it was so really behind in a sense you know it was the west coast in that era and i was in a suburb of it too so it was like there was woods and things like that. It was it was a, a definitely a different you know thing <laughs> a little different from brooklyn 
not much ethnic diversity. It was just totally different, just a whole different thing. At what point did music enter your life? I know that you started out as a metal guy. What influenced that? What caused that? What were the factors leading up to that? Well, one funny enough, leaving school, you know, from moving to the West Coast and all that, I was upset about it. I remember it was a big deal. And I had my mother bribed me with, I said, I wanted to take guitar lessons. And so when we got out there, I started taking guitar lessons as part of the payback for moving. You know, I just started out, anybody else, I started liking hard rock. I was already into music. I was gravitated towards it early on. I actually, actually was kind of playing around with piano, even like at five, I started taking piano lessons just because I was all, I was at a neighbor's and I was always playing on it and they noticed that. And so it was just innate in me to some degree. But out there, I started discovering hard rock, you know, like Boston, Farner, any sticks, you know, anything that I start drawn to that electric guitar stuff. Then it grew into heavier and harder stuff and favorite guitar player, you know, like Scorpions or Michael Schenker or <laughs> Rainbow, Richie Blackmore. Of course, Randy Rhodes changed my life. And then all that kind of stuff just became a real guitar guy. And that progressed into high school and the one thing though, I was I was either too lazy or just not really good enough. My ear wasn't good, but I wouldn't learn songs. I couldn't like learn. I'd learn maybe part of a riff of a popular song, but that would be it. And so when I, I tried to start bands like way before I was ready, I mean, I could couldn't even play a song really all the way through, but I was determined to have a rock group. And I just started writing my own stuff like almost immediately. Hmm. And that was hard to get other kids involved because they weren't, they were like, no man, let's play this, you know, ACDC riff or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, cool, but I've got this song. And it's like, well, you're, you're, who are you? You can't write a song. And so funny enough, my, like last year of high school there, I was like 17, I just started going into studios that were around 10. And I mean, they were like some guy seemed older to me at the time. He was probably like <laughs> 28 or something. I don't know. But they might have some like eight track reel to reel or something. I don't even know where I found these people. It's very ambitious. And, and I just started recording my songs and demos and getting people to help. And I found a couple of guys that were just, okay, I'll jam drums on it. You know, it was just we didn't know what we were doing but that's when i was really getting into metal per se and we recorded this thing and some high school buddies and i sent it into and i, I got a job at a record store my first real job i started out one day a week and then i started working there so i would look at all the records and the labels and back and this is right when metal blade records started putting out Metal Massacre series. So I sent one in, totally on pro. Black Magic Marker wrote the address out, sent it. And lo and behold, a few months later, I got a letter back with the Metal Blade Records logo on it, which if you think back on it, was pretty cheesy looking. But I was like, oh my God, and they accepted us. So I'm like, not even out of high school yet, and I'm getting something on a record. And we were on Metal Massacre 5, which had like Voivod and Celtic Frost oh, and yeah. things like that. But they, you know, nobody knew who anybody was yet. But the previous ones had like Slayer and different. So it was, even though they weren't popular yet at all, and I had those records in at the record store. And so for me, it was the big time. I was like, all right, well, here we are. Um, this is it. This is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. So, yeah, that's how it started. And then we just got caught up in that movement. There was nothing going on, really, in the North. We put on our own shows outside of Seattle, like Grange Halls. And the fanzine-type culture was going on. And... There was such a big movement in San Francisco, and we had our driver's license. We bought a van. I think we used my truck. I had this little truck once and put a canopy that didn't fit on it. And we drove, we would write the other bands like Testament and Death Angel and all these bands that were coming out of Exodus. Everything was coming out of Berkeley and San Francisco. And we made friends with the band Metal Church, who came out of the Northwest area. And we just started doing our own, in quotes, tour. It was us just driving down to 
San Francisco and playing, but that got us in that whole thing. And then we ended up getting to open for Slayer and Anthrax. And then we put out our own record on, on Enigma. And I mean, they were horrible productions, not know what we're doing, but it was the excitement and our live shows were just crazy. And that's what started it rolling. Did you ever play at the Omni in San Francisco? Oh, I don't remember the Omni. We played Berkeley's Inn, the Stone, the Mabuhe. Oh, the Stone, yeah. Berkeley's Inn was the big one. That was, uh, Ruthie's Inn in Berkeley. That was like where the guys from Metallica would walk in while you're playing. Axis was there all the time. I, that was the club that they were actually would hang at and play. So that was the real heart of it. And then the bigger shows would be like, in Frisco at Mabuhe or uh, Stone or something like that. I'm curious where this DIY drive came from. I don't know. And that's funny, too. That's because we were part of that crossover development that was happening between metal and the whole punk rock scene in San Francisco had the heavy punk influence. And so we had made friends with these guys, the accused, who kind of became legendary group themselves. But, you know, that was obviously a big part of that scene, the punk rock scene. But I don't know. I just had I had dreams and ambitions and I just like went for it. I think, you know, a lot of back to Brooklyn, it's kind of that you just had that tenacity. And, and my mother instilled that a lot in me. And um, I just was fearless. I just like would go for it. And I, you know, funny enough, when I moved a few years ago, I went through all these old boxes and I even found an envelope, unopened, middle envelope, returned to me with, like I said, really bad, bad handwriting, sent to Michael Goldstone at, it, was, it wasn't even Epic Records, it must have been the first label he ever worked at, and it was returned because, you know, no unsolicited material accepted. Somehow I must have found his name, because I didn't know who he was or anything, I must have saw it on some list or something, working at, you know, researching all these things, and funny enough, he became the legendary A&R guy who signed Pearl Jam and, and Rage Against the Machine and all these things years later. Now, I didn't remember that or know anything, but just a couple of years ago, I came across this thing and it was attention, Michael Goals, and I just started laughing so hard <laughs> because like, who would have thought? But that also goes to part of where I started wanting to get into production because I was thinking big and I wanted to, the studios I was finding at the time in Seattle just weren't, or the Seattle area weren't really happening, or I don't know. I, our stuff was recorded really poorly. It was horrible. I had bought a four track and I ran into this guy that I knew who was already had a eight track at home and he was making these recordings so good. And I go, well, I, I, I got to do this. And so I started getting more and more into my own thing. And then once I started realizing I could do it some of myself, then I was like, okay, then I was hooked on that. How are you surviving financially being in this band? Well, I was young, so I was still living at home, and I worked I worked at the record store. I ended up working there for years, ended up becoming the manager and the record buyer. And, and wow. it was great because there was brothers who owned it, and they ended up becoming minor celebrities in this suburb. And so it brought in traffic. Everybody knew who it was. And and I started bringing in all the metal stuff, and the punk rock stuff, t-shirts. So it became kind of a local cool place to go to. And when we would do our little tours, he, I still had my job. I think they even lent us money for like t-shirts or, or van. I mean, they became, it became part of the whole community in a way. Did you learn anything from that record store as far as the record business, how it functioned, or did you learn any business skills there that you applied to your own life? Absolutely. I mean, the fortunate thing about my career has been that I've kind of been in a lot of different parts of the industry. Like, for instance, working in the record store, I learned all about distribution, being a record buyer. I started knowing the independent record companies and the different people in the one stops that dealt with the record and selling the records to the record stores, what the profits were. I mean, I, I got in depth in that. And even like there's this thing called the album network, which would chart. And I became a person that would report for that from the Northwest. So I had that whole side of how rate, record sales and radio were working together. And 
as I grew, as micro girl and I got a major deal and stuff, and I was on the road doing promotional tours and radio tours, like I knew all what they were trying. I, I understood both sides of it. Mm. And then being an artist independently and on a major label, and then being an engineer and growing to being a producer, I kind of feel like I've been on both sides of the glass there. I felt like I knew how to relate to the band members. Just I've been in so many bands and rehearsal situations and the personalities between the singer, the guitar players, the drummers, the guitar players, guitar pedals, all those different aspects I was able to understand and know. And it encompasses the whole package as opposed to just one element of being in a band or recording a band or being successful in a band or having staying power or whatever it might be. And, and then the different decades of how the industry has changed so much. How did you start to make the transition into audio? How did Was there a point at which audio started to encroach on the music side of your life and become more interesting to you? Definitely. Well, I mean, you know, started with guitars. You get obsessed with your guitar sound and, and things like that. Where it really took the big step was when I started working with London Bridge Studios and I'd actually booked some time there. That's how I started for my own new project I was working on. I was trying to come up with a new thing. They were the real studio in town, pretty new, but they had a Neve and a Studer 2-inch and all that. That was not around or available. And so I started, they started coming up with my radar. And I actually went to a Queensryche autograph party because <laughs> I knew a bunch of people involved in that. And it was held at in the live room there. So that was more of a schmooze for me to go see a hangout. And then I saw that place, I go, oh, this is a real deal. This place is amazing. And so that prompted me to want to book a couple of days there and I did some recording. And, and I'd been doing a lot on my own, uh, just home stuff. So I, I started seeing production becoming, understanding it more and what it was really all about. And so I started getting intrigued for sure. There wasn't really schools or things like that, or at least that I knew of. I wasn't familiar with like a full sale or anything like that. I, have, I don't know. I just never thought about going to school for it or anything like that. I probably would have. But yeah, so we did some recording. And then I went out one night just out to one of the big popular clubs in Seattle, the Vogue, where all everybody started. Nirvana, Pearl Jam, you name a Seattle band they play there. And I saw Rick, who's one of the brothers, tend to work, end up working with brothers that own London Bridge. And he had seen me when we were setting up for my sessions. He wasn't working it, but he was in there checking and making sure everything went okay with the guy who was running it. Because it was his first session, which was Don Gilmore, who went on to do uh, Lincoln Park. And that was his first solo session was engineering my first session at London Bridge. <laughs> so I was out and I saw Rick and he said, hey, you were at London Bridge. And I said, yeah, how was it? Did you enjoy it? And I go, that was awesome, blah, 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 blah. And we just started talking all night. And he goes, well, hey, I'm going to, what are you doing after this? And what are you doing after this? And he said, I'm going to go back to the studio. If you feel you want to come. And I'm like, hell yeah, I want to go. And I went, we hit it off. I'm like looking on the mics, kind of nerding out. He's just enjoying himself with the people that were invited there and stuff. And somehow we got to talk and he mentioned, yeah, Don's going to be leaving, going on his own. I got to find somebody, a new assistant. I just went, well, how about me? I'm, I'm your guy. <laughs> yeah. And so I just hounded him for a few weeks. And uh, this is Rick Parisher, right? He's producer did Pearl Jam and House and Chain and stuff and many others. And he owned London Bridge? Him and his brother, Raj. Okay. Yeah. He wasn't even that determined to be an engineer. His is no whole other story. But a lot of it was out of necessity. So anyway, at that point, things were starting to happen because they were the one place in town that had that type of equipment, that type of room. It was one of those things, no reason to really build it there at the time. They just kind of did, you know, it was like Field of Dreams thing. Build it and they'll come. And so it just so happened the same time that explosion of music started happening in Seattle. And that was a good place where a major label would say okay to record it. So, you know, Allison changed the stuff there with Dave Jordan. The Mother of Love Bone record was done there. So things were starting to happen. 
And so, yeah, I ended up getting a shot at working with Rick and started being the assistant. And, and he just threw me in the fire and said, here you go. And I'm like, all right, how do I how do I work this thing? I mean, I kind of knew, but it's like, you know, I felt like he was going to show me something. And he's like, figure it out, basically. In so many words, the one day I remember in particular was that he uh, handed me a book. I still have it on my bookshelf. It's a hardbound, big old physics book from University of Washington. And, I, and he goes, here's your manual. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm going to rock, man. Show me how to rock and roll. You know, like, <laughs> let's get this go. He hands me a book. I'm like, I don't want to go to school physics. It started making sense to me, the frequencies, da, da, da. I'm like, well, okay. But he just put me in the fire. And then they gave me any time I wanted to record things and bring in other local bands or whatever to develop and learn and just learn the hard way. Like just, I used to get frustrated because the patch bay was never really, I don't know if it ever was. It is now the, the new guys own it. It's pristine. But back then, like if you didn't know what was going on, in it, good luck. Nothing was labeled all the way. It's like right. a minefield. Yeah, yeah. It's like if you knew, you knew. If you didn't, good luck. So that was always like, and then it just it intimidated you. So you think you're stupid because you can't do things or get something to work. But it was a cool way to learn, man. And we do times over periods after a few records when I brought Pro Tools in. Right, right when it was coming out, I was like, I was always interested in anything new technology was. Like, I had a sampler when I was in a metal band. I didn't know why. I saw it. I go, this has to be cool. <laughs> and I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but it's going to be cool. So I was always into that. So as soon as Pro Tools kind of came, I started trying to get that implemented into what we were doing. And Rick was very leery of it that time sound quality everything you know and so we were syncing it to two inch and we did everything the hard way but it helped me so much to develop my ear and knowing what the difference was from tape and that and trying to make that sound like tape or just the technical abilities to get them to sync but yet still editing on tape and we do things where we started using some plugins or some then newest ones like they're terrible well actually weren't that bad but compared to what we have these days and we try to like have competitions to get a better guitar sound he'd like start tweaking and eve into that back and forth and see if he can beat that things like that so it was like school and straight on but at the same time we were recording these records that who knew? Like with the Pearl Jam records, for instance, the first record I did that was a label record was Love on Ice, which was signed to Interscope, a band out of Portland. Great band, but it wasn't because none of them were famous yet or anything like that. And with all the Seattle bands, I knew them already from around town, sharing rehearsal rooms, parties, whatever. It was just your peers. And so in doing so, it wasn't like oh, we have a big band coming in this week or this month. And it wasn't like that. So you're just, you were just working and mm. making cool records. And the attitude was so uh, nonchalant kind. I mean, it was important, but nobody thought about making a hit or a big record or anything. I didn't even see label guys around or anything like that. So it was just like... Well, there's nothing wrong with that, huh? <laughs> you know, right. Which did change after a while. But still, I mean, it was kind of like, I just felt lucky that I could be doing this during the day and stuff and recording and not delivering pizzas and stuff like that. Let me parse that out a bit. I want to talk just about your time there. First of all, it's I find it fascinating that Rick took a huge chance on you. You didn't really know all that much at that time. And here's a guy who had a studio. What do you think he saw in you that caused him to say, you know what, I'm going to have this guy get involved? I wish I could say it was something he saw in my amazing talent that was black, but it was nothing like that. If you knew Rick was a, a very particular dude, he had a unique personality, really serious, really pro, classically trained, knew his stuff. But he also had this like couldn't care less attitude about stardom, record deals. He just didn't care. He, I think he just saw my enthusiasm and liked hanging out with me. 
thought I was a cool guy and let's just see how he does. You know, I ended up doing a record. I was actually recorded with him on our own stuff, which a lot of people don't know. And then a band that I got signed to Island Records, he was the producer on. So I've been on all kinds of sides with him. And he'd be the first guy to tell you, hey, let's, you're not much of an engineer. You can kind of play guitar. <laughs> I don't know. Let's try to get this tighter. I mean, he was not one for complimenting. I don't know why, but we ended up doing lots of cool things together. We had a kind of a brotherly thing, too. It could be, he was very competitive. Like, if you're playing pool or darts, man, he had to win, and he would win. He, I don't know, it was very interesting personality and relationship we all had. And same with his brother, Roger. Like, we all became very tight as that whole thing blew up. And, and it was a lot for everybody to take on and even understand what was happening with how all that blew up as it did. Like, I didn't even really realize how, I don't think if any of us did realize how big it was until years later. I was going to ask, did that record, the Pearl Jam 10 record, cause a significant change in your life? No. it's It's been something I've ended up talking about a lot, but like it didn't really, didn't bring me more work or anything like that. That's surprising. I mean, for Rick, it changed. He was a producer, you know, and then... He was able to move on to Blind Melon and bigger band. Then he started to be known outside of just Seattle, but as an engineer at the time. And then just within those few years, just by sheer, uh, I mean, who would have thought, but I ended up getting a record deal. So I left for a couple of years doing that and then came back. And that was with which band? Sybil Vane was a band that I got signed with. Well, it was Polydor, then I went to Island Records. So we had this little run in the midst of all that stuff blowing up, you know, early 90s. I mean, I started in 89, just 90, really. It was like just turning 90. And then by 95 there, we had done those records. I had gotten a deal, recorded a record, and dropped, and then back into production. <laughs> yeah, so it was like this whole five years of all that. So, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean... It did and it didn't. There's so many other things I've done and worked on that nobody knows about or, or you know, ever made any interest. But yeah, I mean, it took a long time to really realize that, that was such a thing. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. Now, why did you leave Seattle? Most recent time or the many other times? Oh, have there been multiple times? I've lived in L.A. a couple times. I lived in London for a little bit just because I was trying to move on with the industry, trying to do other work, things like that. But the most recent time is just growing older, personal reasons. My mother had passed away and kind of not, not much left in Seattle. And my wife's from Pittsburgh area. And I just thought it was time to make a change and spent so much time out there. It's kind of like, what do I do? Move to LA again? I wanted to change. I didn't really want to do that again. So came out east, which has been working out because now I can jet down to Nashville. and It's close. New York's close. Yeah. Now, the time between the Pearl Jam record and now, what has been the focus of your attention over the years? You know, I was just building on my production career. I always keep writing or trying to do that. I spent a lot of time on the electronic side. Well, in the sense of programming, I'm just always find fun with that. Whether I just do music for myself, I don't even release it or whatever. I'm always just enjoy learning the new sequencing gear or programming or sampling. I just find it fun. And I always look for ways to a project or something to do something with that. But then again, I'm still, I love just do a singer songwriter or a rock. I don't know, just production looking for another great artist to work with. You know, it's mm -hmm. always just kind of been my thing. Now you had a couple different studios over the years. 
Now, your new place, you have a, like a, a performance art space. Is that right? Like it's a sanctuary, if I'm, if I'm correct? Liz Berlin, who's um, a singer and artist from the band Rusted Root, mm. they had a big run. Funny enough, they were on Nyland Records in the 90s. Never knew her. But met her out here, and her and her husband own Mr. Smalls, which is the big theater club here where touring bands, everybody comes through, plays there. And they also own a another church that they turned into their own studio called the sanctuary and they were just doing that when i'd gotten out here and i'd heard that hey you should meet these people and i met them and showed me a place i'm like it was they were just building it and there's a giant trident sitting in there i'm like whoa what's this and we're doing a studio i go we need to talk so (laughs) we started talking and i still owned a studer two-inch machine and i said man i need a place to put a two-inch machine you know so we just started talking i helped them get that that place going it's kind of a a semi-private studio they do their stuff out of but it was a good way for me to get rolling out here and i might be doing something else with another place here too I'm always trying to look just for opportunities right now. And then I just have my own home place where I uh, write and can do some mixes and things like that if needed. But yeah, I've been through a few studios and you know how that is. It's like industries, roller coaster, trying to keep them open. So, you know, I've had them, closed them, had them, closed them, worked out of apartments in LA to having studios. So I can. I'm used to like wherever's next, you know. <laughs> what What are the big takeaways that you have learned about opening and closing studios over the years? Like, what's the big lesson that you've learned? I'll tell you. The last one I ran that I had, I had open Seattle. It's called Star Lodge Studios. I was running that for a while. And I think where I've noticed a big generational change in music, the whole art of making records has changed or it really stood out during that period was that people don't make records like they used to. I started seeing bands coming in that they had a rehearsal room and they would get together a few times a week and write 10 songs and want to make a record or an EP. It was starting to be that time when we'll just do an EP or whatever but and that would be it and there would be a lack of well just you know it was too soon from what i would get these well can't you know they'd see whatever platinum record or something on my my wall or know something from my discography and say and kind of assume it's going to sound like that or be like that or and you know sometimes they're pretty young guys sometimes not just 30 year some year old guys who just enjoy playing, but kind of still have the dream or whatever. And I kind of have to explain, you know, there's a lot more to it than just jamming the rehearsal room and on your first few songs and thinking you're going to do a record with, we got 500 bucks. Well, what about that record? And I'm like, yeah, that was $250,000 record, you know? And it's not only about the money. It was what I started noticing is just like back in my day, back in the day to get a record deal, first you would have probably made tons of demos with numerous bands, whether at home or in a studio or whatever. You might then get successful enough enough and played a ton of shows. Then you might have got successful enough to get the the attention of an A&R guy from a label who let him, if really liked you by that point, would give you maybe a little bit more money to go make more demos. And by that point, you've had so much experience in a studio. You have studio etiquette, which I like to call. You can communicate what adjectives you need to use, or at least you're getting there. And hopefully you have a producer at this point who has some type of knowledge of that and the communication and, and obviously the engineering skills. But And you've now recorded a few times and, and starting to know the process. And, and then maybe you go make a record. Or you tour and then you make a record, but and to learn how and to trust an engineer and know and a producer and know when you're overdubbing what they're going for. It's and you don't have you didn't have the time, which meant resources as money to play that all out. It was like obviously for records from the 70s and even 80s, how 
the art of making the record was so important. There was so much put into it, so much time put in, just chasing the sound, chasing the performance, which leads me into working with Pearl Jam, for instance. You know, we did two like month long demos, I believe, before we even started the record. And Stone, I know, had already been doing songwriting demos and they'd already made a record with Mother Lovebone and Green River before that. And so, there's experience and like when we were doing that and then we worked from like what it started at 10 to three in the morning, just going take after take after take to get that one song, even for it was all day just to get the take. And then, of course, we built on that and just a lot of work to make these records happen. And, and there was no Pro Tools, so there was no fixing and things like that. It's all free Pro Tools. And I'll tell some people when I do talks that, and it kind of blows young kids' mind. Well, how'd you do it? A razor blade and tape, or you did it again, or, you know, the whole form of comping was all done by, you know, using the remote on the tape machine and comping down to one track. I mean, it was just much more laborious, but which also made it I feel that's part of the lost magic of it is that you worked harder. It was, there was so much more put into it. Not to mention the pre-production that went into it even before you set foot in the studio. And I'm glad you said that because one of the best things, most valuable thing I learned off of Rick Prosher was he was, pre-production was everything to him. He was really hardcore about that. You wouldn't even think of pushing record yet until he worked with you in pre-production arrangements. He'd sit there with out in the live room sometimes or the rehearsals room with the drummer and he'd have a 57 in his hand and he'd like, he'd like work with him with beats like over the PA with, (laughs) you know, the singing it basically over over the mic, all the way up to every other part. I got all the uh, Eddie's parts, like all those harmonies. And, and he did a lot of early work with Alice in Chains on their demos for the record. And it was all at the piano, working out the harmonies and things like that. So the big lesson to learn, I actually saw a great interview with Michael Beinhorn about pre-production. And that is one of the big lost parts about making a record. Yeah, the days of going, you know, checking the band into SIR for right. three weeks or a month for nonstop pre-production. Rehearsal pre-production. I, I think it's one of the, the frustrating things, and I don't know if you encounter this with musicians today, is that they show up woefully underprepared in the studio, and they the onus is now on the engineer and the producer to solve the issues that were once solved at the source. They were by good playing, working through the, the material, working through the arrangements and the tempos, et cetera, et cetera, which is what Michael Beinhorn is is offering to, to people today. The intention put behind picking the right tempo was a big deal. Like, it could be, oh, I'm still feeling it's off on BPM after like 30 takes. Are you kidding me? Really? You know? <laughs> but also, like, there was a lot of magic done, a lot of fixing sometimes, but... I don't even know how we did it sometimes, but just you had to get so creative, so think outside of the box to fix things and problems because you you just didn't have that power of the computer and the editing that you can do, but you figured it out. You did some, I mean, think just technical issues. If something wasn't working or whatever, you, there was so many hoops you had to jump jump through to make a piece of gear work or whatever you had to do. You had to be so resourceful and and not just reboot. You had to <laughs> you had to do something to fix it, like pull out a soldering iron, something. Yeah, and and I know for the audience, you know, we might sound like a couple guys talking about back in my day, we had to walk up, you know, walk to school uphill both ways in the snow. But it was a different time from the musician's standpoint. The playing was at a higher level to some degree for some musicians. But at the same time, I will say that... Well, it made you get better. Oh, yeah. You had to be better. But part of the joy of what we have now technologically has produced some fascinating artists. You know, I'll say like Billie Eilish, for example, like crazy interesting artist 
That, oh, absolutely. That's why I said I'm so I, I would never give up my Pro Tools or all of my synthesizers and samplers and whatnot. I love them. So big picture of what you've learned over the years from a perspective of finances and how to survive, how to manage money. I'm sure you've spent some money on some stupid stuff like anybody has. God, kidding me. So what are your big takeaways from your career thus far? Obviously there's, you know, many more years to come, but you obviously have learned some lessons along the way, made some mistakes. What would you advise others to do in terms of how to deal with money and being an audio professional? I mean, taking into what, you know, all the things I did say about how it was working a song and putting so much effort into those things. I also think if I was starting over, I, I would learn, you know, like an MPC or my push to or whatever it might be. And I'd learn it inside out. I'd be such an expert. I think being like, like right now, if you're trying to hustle work if you're a young guy whether as an engineer whatever i would know my pro tools inside out and you, you want to know things you want to be in a situation where you know something they might not not think of you in that way but if you're in the room and you go and like i can't get this so and so how do you do that and you know that's your shot like if you know if you're up on everything you're, one thing that always helped me, I was a guitar guy, so nobody really thought I would know about different things. It could be a hip-hop session or whatever might come in, and I go, and you see them struggling with an M1 or something back in the day or some type of gear, and I go, hey, let me help you. And you know how to do it or get their session running. They look at you like, oh, damn, dude, you know, <laughs> and you have a whole new respect. And it could be the same the other way, like learn about a tape machine, know how to use, don't be intimidated by any of it. Or I always think knowing as much as that kind of stuff as possible, you don't have to know obviously everything, but I think knowing some things that are, might necessarily be out of your box a little bit is good. As far as an engineering thing today, I think it probably would, would serve you well is just to be so, if you're one of those guys who really good at your organization skills on Pro Tools and tracks and how those are going to be saved and where, you know, in case they go to another studio. Back in my day, I've gotten lazy at it now, but back in the day, you know, when you had to make sure I knew these tapes were maybe going to go to whoever the hottest mixer was at that area. So or I'm sending them to LA to Capitol Records. I want to make sure that everything's labeled right. Everything looks good. So it comes out looking pro. That was a big deal in getting a job in a studio back in the day. And the same thing applies just with Pro Tools or whatever it might be. I think that's great advice as far as like how to manage to continue to get work and show that you are competent to generate more income as an audio professional. But what about the aspect of managing the money and not like going and blowing it all? If there is money, I mean, that's, it's a difficult time. There's not the resources, there's not the labels that are giving you those kind of budgets. And so it's a fact. I mean, records are being made differently because of that. Mm. Even some of the what you would consider bigger records are done in shorter time and a lot less maybe experimentation or less tracking. You know, there's a lot more almost, I don't want to say guerrilla recording, but it, I will say like kind of Nashville style recording where you're something about Nashville. It's been like that since the early days of country, but you can just turn stuff out there. They got a kit already set up and a bass sound and everything. And I'm funny, I've been watching that country documentary thing and I'm seeing and I go, God, it's the same way down there now. They still turn out. I was talking to got Chris Marr. He was telling me, if you think it's going to take you three to five days, then give yourself a day here in Nashville. <laughs> you know, <'cause> can, <laughs> and he's kind of right. I was always like skeptical of that. But because I'm I kind of come from a different school or we had time or we'd take our time no matter what it was. But. They move quick. So being able to move quick, but yeah, you just don't have those budgets. So, well, you brought up Billie Eilish. Now that record is so interesting because, it, well, it's doing so well. It's pop, but it's not. It's all those things. But what's amazing about it is so it's minimal, so minimalistic, it sounds so good. 
they did it together in their bedroom. I mean, the creativity that they brought to putting across the stories, the emotions, the what's behind the lyrics without having to do gazillion tracks with a gazillion different instruments and engineers, that's ingenious. And that's the sign of our time now and how records can be made. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. For the audience, if you go back to WCA number 39, long ago, long before Billie Eilish, John Green, a mastering engineer, mastered Billie's stuff and has been working with her for quite some time. I talked with him the other day. It was very interesting. I said, so, it's going pretty well, isn't it? And he said, man, the phone will not stop ringing. It's unbelievable. And he's he's on the mastering end of it. So right. that's that's why I was curious about you and the Pearl Jam 10 record, because I thought that, well, maybe you encountered the same thing, but you didn't. But maybe it's because of the times that we live in for in the times where, you know, a Billie Eilish can become so successful so rapidly because within a short amount of time, just like a virus can spread across well, the world, and, and music can spread across the world. media things like that too yeah. are different like you said with Pearl Jam and some of the Alice stuff I've done I you know I was living in Los Angeles stuff it, it would be a good opener or somebody might ask you about it but nobody really cared I mean to, it didn't it never really affected me getting work or not I was always hustling I've gotten more things off of like well, not even that but you know I did some work with the Afghan wigs and Greg Dooley and I don't know. I've just never had, it seems like more of the cult stuff or, or even local stuff that never got big, I would get work off of. Hmm. But generally speaking, I just got a lot of my work came from just finding young bands that wanted to work. I kept, unfortunately, I'd had, I had some big management with Lipman Entertainment who were amazing, but It'd be these little, that roller coaster of your career, as it were, you know, the industry would be up and then for whatever reason I was doing something else and then it was down and I had big management, there's nothing out there. So it's just, I don't know, it's just life. But sometimes it works too. If, if you're, you spent a long, long time in one particular uh, studio or whatever, that helps too, especially if they get on a run. But I was one of those people always, I was maybe detrimental to my own career, but I always was trying different things and going to different genres and either doing my own stuff or then back doing something else. So maybe if I would have, I don't know, everybody's got their journey, you know? Yeah. Like I said, I think back to what you're saying, like one of the keys now, because you can't have all this cool gear, and I, I guess not to say like you'll hear your bedroom studio productions, but what I'm saying is I think as far as getting creative, like with with what they did with the Billy Ash stuff is to just be in the room. It was their songwriting and what they put together. And it doesn't even necessarily sound like songwriting. It's not like a guy and his guitar or a band playing, but they obviously put together a vibe and a story behind it and a thing. Getting creative like that with what you have and then taking it to the right mastering guy, the right mixer or whatever. Even though in those tracks, it sounds like, well, there's not even that much to mix. You know? I know. But damn, that sounds, it sounds cool. It's impactful. Yeah, definitely. So if you have that to take somewhere. So I think, I think that's to be part of the game now. It's like, you got to get really, uh, in, but I think because with what 
what's out there now, there is a lot of stuff that's so rapidly produced or turned out quickly. Like there's a gazillion trap beats you can hear in a day that sounds like so you know where you had a, a record like her Billy Ash that comes out and it sounded kind of different in it but yet has elements of that influences that so how do you deal with we come from very similar backgrounds in that of that era of records made over the course of time and is a very different time period especially budget wise so today with budgets if a band approaches you is it a hard decision for you to make to work with somebody who's got a minuscule budget or are you just in it because you enjoy it and there's there's something to, something to create there no it's well more and more it's becoming a decision just because time and life like what do you want to spend doing so like right right now i've been like spending time doing some of my own music just because i'm like can't believe i haven't done anything for this long so and to keep my own chops up but yeah, I have to come across something that I think is really special. Honestly, I, I just don't even think about there being a budget mm. because it just usually isn't. If I'm going to find something I think is great or I come across something that I know is awesome, I know I'm going to be doing it for free probably and to see what we can do with it and where it can go. But when the, here and there, there are projects but I gotta that do have something, but Honestly, this one I'll like if if it's there's no big money makers where there's gonna I mean, at least for me there hasn't been here's is all this money please make a record for us so I don't have that dilemma too often but if they have some money and I don't think it's ready or that or even more so I had a artist that wanted me to mix something and I liked them and I got the tracks and I put up and listened to it and it's kind of going. I also noticed a lot of people who are tracking now, newer engineers, they'll be, everything's there to reamp or to do something different with it and so many options. And we, I go back to the day of making decisions why me and Vance, uh, when we talk, we get along because Vance Powell is a guy <laughs> who likes to make decisions. I'm the same way. I like to commit. You know, I was listening to it and I was going, and I did a couple runs at it and I heard their stuff and I go, you know, I don't think I'm really going to add that much more for it. I could keep working on it, working on it, working on it, but I don't think you're that far. I don't know if I'm going to really make it that much better for you. And so I'll just let it go, then take their money that I know isn't coming from a label or they don't have that much, or it's a small label. And it's like, I'd rather not at this point than just do anything just to do it. So that's kind of where I'm at now. Like it's got to be... if. If I hear something, I go, oh, man, I know I can add to that and I'm excited about it, then then there's a thing. Well, we're almost out of time. I want to ask you, what's what's ahead for you? What are you planning on doing for the next 5, 10, 15 years here? There's always those moments where I quit, like, every day. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I hate this business. No, I mean, I just, this is what I do. So I'm trying to record and release some more of my own stuff just because I want to. And that's fun for me. And, you know, I just keep looking for different artists to work with. I still know there's another one out there that's going to be monumental. I feel like I'm not done yet. I want to find some somebody, uh, whether that's a country influence or a total electronic or rock. I don't know yet, but I'm always open for that, looking for that. And different other opportunities in studios or work with different people. I'm trying to do more educational stuff, video-wise, maybe some technique-type things. And I just always got to be in the game somehow. I like that you you are open to multiple genres and just trying different things and, and st keeping a hand in the writing. I think it keeps you fresh. Yeah, well, I think that's... I mean, that's where it is right now. It's like just to, or at least for me, I mean, just to be sitting in and running in a studio all the time. I mean, I would enjoy that. There's always things I like about that. But I don't know, I feel like getting my hands dirty again a little bit more with an artist or with myself or some collaborations. I know there's some interest in analog again, people using some of the old, old stuff. Obviously, that's on everything you read and stuff. So I know I have knowledge of that. And I've always had my fingers in everything digital too. So I've been hybriding stuff for a long time. So I enjoy kind of showing and t talking about my uh, 
experience in that too. So I'll just keep doing things like that. Well, Dave, thank you so much for making time for me. It's great to hear about your journey and hear all the different aspects of what you have been involved in and what you want to be involved in here in the future. And I hope to see you again at another party and uh, maybe spend a little more time hanging out chatting. I'm sure we'll run into another party. <laughs> <laughs> There's always another party. All right. Take care, Dave. Dave Hillis here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. I want to thank everybody that helped out with the show. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the smooth and silky voice of Mr. Chuck Smith. There at the intro, spread the word. Stop on by workingclassaudio.com and check us out. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>